After staying there for a considerable time, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. At Centre, okay, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but first he himself went into the synagogue and had a discussion with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place through the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Acacia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those who through grace had become believers, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Paul got a haircut. That's fascinating that that landed uh, in the account of the early church. Um, but maybe we'll understand its meaning more fully here in just a minute. Well, growing up, um, I received a set of coffee table books uh, from my aunt for a birthday. And it was a three-set volume that I later realized uh, were photographs from the Voyager 1 and 2 satellite mission that was launched in the late 70s. And this mission revealed unprecedented aspects of our solar system, exploring our four gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, 48 of their moons, the unique rings and magnet fields of those planets. And the imagery that was sent back was breathtaking in terms of its beauty. Uh, and I have a few slides here uh, that include the, the swirling storm of Jupiter, the entire ring set of Saturn, the stratification across the moon Europa, the blue-gray orb of Uranus, and the ocean-blue hue of Neptune. By 2018, both satellites crossed what's known as the heliopause, which is the threshold of interstellar space, the point that's beyond the influence of our sun. And these satellites will continue their journey into the extent of the galaxy until eventually they will burn up in a star one sextillion years from now. That's 10 to the 20th power, if you're wondering. The origin of that whole mission is attributed to an aerospace engineer that worked for JPL by the name of Gary Flandreau. And in 1964, Flandreau observed that Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune would align in the late 70s in a way that would enable a single spacecraft to visit all of these planets, planets using a slingshot gravity assist. So every time these satellites would, would round the edge of a planet, 
it would catch its gravity and slingshot to the next planet. This mission was only possible because this super smart guy, Gary Flandro, realized through calculations that there would be this one moment that only happens once every 175 years. And we could carry out this mission and get these photographs. Well, this morning we continue in our series in the book of Acts. And the main idea of the book of Acts is spelled out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That who Jesus is and this good news of what he has done for us is going to reach Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and eventually the ends of the earth. And by the time we arrive in Acts chapter 18, we find that Paul is doing these orbits around the Mediterranean. These missionary journeys, starting in Jerusalem. And he slingshots to Antioch. And then he moves into the region of Galatia and across the agency to various cities, eventually back to Jerusalem, and then through the course again. And as Paul goes around and around in this orbit, as we've seen, a beautiful reality emerges. Both Jews and Gentiles begin following Jesus together in the church. Women are dignified. Spiritual darkness is cast out of people's lives. Even the oppressor in the Roman Empire is redeemed, as we saw last week. But it wasn't a cakewalk. It wasn't easy, as we see in the text this morning. You know, returning to the Voyager story, back in 1971, just two years after Gary Philandro made this discovery, through his calculations of this kind of once-in-a-couple-of-lifetime event. Something happened. Congress, enamored by the space shuttle mission, canceled this project. Can you imagine the frustration of Philandro and his colleagues? Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this grand discovery in their career, potentially down the tubes at the hands of politicians. Well, Paul faced a similar challenge in Corinth. The Jews not only opposed Paul, but they ridiculed him. And he got so frustrated that he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He was done. He was spent, exasperated ready to give up, and ready to move on. And I wonder how you might be feeling like that this morning. In your marriage, in your career, in your parenting, in the larger vision of your own calling. And in the face of great adversity for Paul, God appeared in a dream and told Paul one thing, Stay here. Stay in the city of Corinth. And you can imagine that Paul was ready to move on, just to get to the next city, to begin the next chapter, maybe retire on a Mediterranean island. <laughs> Isn't that often the case when we face these frustrating events in our life and in our calling? We just want to escape. We just want to move on. We just want to turn the page but God told Paul stay here and he stayed there in Corinth for a year and a half 
And so the question of Acts 18 really becomes, what can we learn from this command? So let me pray for us as we seek to understand what Jesus has for us here this morning. Lord Jesus, um, some of us in this room, we might be feeling that same frustration. Might be facing those same challenges that, that Paul faced here in Corinth and we want to give up this morning. We want to escape. We want to turn the page. But that, that might not be what you have for us. You might be calling us to stay here. So help us understand what value we might find in that command. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, first, staying put Paul learned how to grapple with the difficulty of life. He learned how to grapple with the difficulty of life, and he does this through relationship with this couple that we're introduced to, Priscilla and Aquila, in the first three verses of Acts 18. Luke there writes that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. A couple of, of background notes here for our understanding. Aquila and his wife Priscilla have relocated to the city of Corinth from Rome, because a governor named Claudius had ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome, which was a regular practice of Roman governors uh, to, to basically carry out these totalitarian enactments over the population uh, that resulted in civil control. And the second century Roman historian Suetonius uh, explains that the Jews were expelled due to riots that broke out because of someone named Christus. Scholars note that it's improbable that this historian is talking about an actual individual named Christus, but more likely points to the upheaval amongst Jewish people about the growth of Christianity in the city of Rome. It's likely that Roman Jews came to faith at Pentecost, in Jerusalem, we saw that back in chapter 2. And they returned to the city of Rome and they started churches, probably first through the synagogues and then in house churches. And Aquila and Priscilla were likely members of this original group of Christians in Rome. Jewish Christians like Priscilla and Aquila would not return to Rome until the death of Claudius in 54 AD. And just as a side note, when they returned to Rome, they had been gone for at least five years. All these Jews returning to Rome, returning to the church, uh, they found that the church was largely composed of Gentile believers, and all sorts of racial and ethnic conflict resulted. And in the wake of that, Paul wrote his famous letter, the Book of Romans, to the church in Rome because of this historical uh, incident or evolution here. We find out that this couple shared a common vocation with Paul known as tent making, but in the Greek, the word can point to the making of saddles for horses. It really means working with leather goods. 
It's unclear if Paul worked for the couple or perhaps they were business partners together. But you can imagine Paul after a long day at the synagogue. He comes back to the workshop. He chats it up with these new friends. He's working with leather, with knives and awls. His back is bent over the workbench. He's rubbing shoulders with slaves, kind of sweating it out as he makes these different leather goods. And scholars speculate on why Paul was bivocational at times. Some scholars would say that he didn't want to appear, at least to the church in Corinth, as some kind of first century huckster that was kind of traveling about, speaking for uh, an engagement fee. Um, patronage was also a popular financial arrangement in the first century where a wealthy aristocrat would hire someone for a commissioned writing or a commissioned painting. Paul didn't want any sort of system of patronage to exist between him and the Christians in Corinth. Some scholars would speculate that Paul was committed to tent making because he wanted a ministry in the marketplace, that he just wanted to be out and about networking with people, uh, seeing how God would work through relationships, opportunities to share the gospel. And I think that all of that could be true. But I think there's something else that perhaps scholars don't pick up on. You know, last week we had to put down um, our beloved dog of 14 years. And uh, the appointment that day was at 8 a.m. And so I wake up with her and, and I go to take her for one final walk we can walk to the vet and uh it's i just felt terrible it's just like a death march you know and i'm just wanting to be alone in this moment and i run into my next door neighbor and he's like yo buck what's going on <laughs> and i just instantly start weeping and i'm like i gotta take my dog to put her down right now and he was like i am so sorry we love you guys so much and he gives me a hug, and he's like, I'll just let you have your moment. And I was like, thank you. And, um, and I keep walking, and, like, you know, we go through with it. Um, my kids asked me to be there to the very bitter end, her last breath. So I had to do that. And all day long, I'm carrying around this heavy heart of grief. And so what do I do at the end of the day? Of course, I cut my grass. I just needed to get outside, just sweat it out for 30 or 45 minutes, just kind of connect with planet Earth, <laughs> to be present with God, to try to somehow bring the world to rights, if all it is is my front yard, <clears throat> because of this heavy heart. And after being in ministry for 14 years, I can tell you possibly what's going on here for Paul. Paul just needed a normal life. He just needed to feel like a human being. You know, let's not over-spiritualize this. After pouring out his heart and straining his mind at the synagogue, he just needed a place, a place to go 
a place to sweat it out, a place to unwind, a place to get his mind off of things, a place where he could work with tangible objects and create something beautiful, a place where he could talk with his friends and process the day's affairs, a place where he could tell some jokes and have a bit of laughter at the end of the day. Jesus had a place. You know, after spending so much time with with the crowds and the multitudes, he got away. He retreated to the inner circle of the disciples. And they had meals together and they laughed and they learned together as they walked down the road. And they sat and talked late into the night around the campfire. We see in Jesus' transfiguration on Mount Tabor, not here in Portland, but Mount Tabor in the Bible, that Jesus retreated just to have some time with some friends. Moses, Elijah, his father. Jesus had a place. It's kind of like the 80s sitcom Cheers. You know, the Boston bar where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. That's a picture of gospel community. Having a place that allows for the unfurling of the soul. This is a key to perseverance. It's central to being present to Jesus in our life. And as we learn to be present to Jesus, we will find the ability to persevere through hardship. Do you have a place? A place to retreat. A place to find yourself in the Lord once again. Second, staying put, we grow in vision for that which is unseen, which is the work of faith. Now God didn't literally say to Paul, stay put, but rather he said, do not be afraid, but speak, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in this city who are my people. Now that's fascinating. God is communicating, he's telling Paul that there is activity in the city of Corinth that Paul could not see. But he wanted to reveal to Paul activity that was nonetheless going on all around him. And so God was calling Paul to stay put so that those invisible realities could become visible. And we see this in two other stories that Luke records in the account. First, in the home of Titus Justus. Paul proclaims Christ in the synagogue in Corinth. As we know, he faces opposition. He uh, faces ridicule. He becomes frustrated. But notice what happens in the very next verse. Verse 7. Paul left the synagogue and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. This was a guy who was perhaps quasi-Jewish. He was asking spiritual questions. He was trying to figure it out. And it says that his house was next door to the synagogue. So in the face of an obstinate synagogue, God tells Paul, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to move the synagogue one door down. I'm going to create a new synagogue, so to speak. And we're reminded of the words of John the Baptist, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as an ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. 
And not only does the synagogue move next door, but we find out in verse 8 that Crispus, who was the ruler or the official of the synagogue, he becomes a follower of Jesus. (laughs) And together with his household and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul, they became believers and they were baptized. There are all these unseen realities, these invisible realities to Paul that because he stayed became visible. And all of this happened actually prior to Paul's dream. It was almost as if God, in order to make visible that which was invisible, he just needed to, to promise, make these promises to Paul, to give him a little bit of data so that he could move into trust. And surely these events were recorded so that we too might trust that God is working all around us in unseen ways. We see this same dynamic at play with Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. Gallio was the son, he was, he was a pretty famous guy. He was the son of the elder Seneca, the rhetorician, and brother of the younger Seneca, the Stoic philosopher. Pretty good chops. He's noted for his charming personality, but he ruled in Achaia for less than a year just so coinciding with Paul's time here, he ruled for less than a year before contracting a fever and going on a cruise to try to restore his health. So that's maybe the opposite of what is being described here. Don't just escape on a cruise when things get hard. But some of the Jews in Corinth, they made a united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal of which Gallio was the head. And they made their case before Gallio, but before Paul could even defend himself, Galileo just kind of out of nowhere dismisses the case. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the internal affairs of the Jews or the church. And this particular group of Jews is obviously unhappy and they seize The next ruler of the synagogue, the guy who replaced Crispus, Crispus had to leave because he began following Jesus. And so somebody else took his place and all these people get mad at that guy and they beat him. Crispus left the synagogue at just the right time. Talk about a good vocational move. Scholars debate what this meant for the church, that is the ruling of Gallio, but at the very least, it provided space for the church in Corinth to breathe and to grow. And at best, one scholar notes that this ruling set legal precedent across the empire for Christianity, allowing it to grow without restraint for the next 10 to 12 years. In staying put, these invisible realities of God became visible. Paul grew in a vision for that which is unseen. And I think this is important for us here in Portland. You know, the Pacific Northwest is the only region in the United States that has never seen a dramatic spiritual awakening. You know, New England saw a grand spiritual awakening, the first great awakening. The eastern frontier across Appalachia, Ohio River Valley. They saw a movement like that in the Second Great Awakening. We see this kind of movement in Southern California and the Azusa Street Revival in the 20th century. We've never had anything like that here in the Pacific Northwest. 
But a spiritual awakening requires a waiting on the Lord. It requires a faithful presence in the city. A long haul commitment. And that's what we see with Paul in staying put in Corinth. And it's no coincidence that Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth are the longest and the most personal of all of his letters. And it was because he intimately knew this place and he knew how God's invisible kingdom was becoming visible. Thirdly, staying put allowed Paul to make a relational investment. And that relational investment had an exponential impact on the whole kingdom of God, on the ministry of the church. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, and it forced Paul to live by subtraction rather than addition. You know, he was accustomed to, to rapidly moving from place to place, moving around in these orbits. But there's only so much of the Apostle Paul to go around. You know, he's, he's spreading himself in all of these places. It reminds me of the words of Bilbo to Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. <laughs> That's Paul. That might be you this morning. Well, <clears throat> that effect... It doesn't bode well when you're being challenged in the synagogue on a daily basis. It, it really kind of is a primer for you just to start losing it on everybody. Perhaps that's what was going on for Paul here in Acts 18. But what happens in Corinth is that Paul spends a great deal of time staying put relationally with Priscilla and Aquila. And as I mentioned a moment ago, their relationship was a profound ministry to Paul, but it also advanced the ministry of the church. In verse 18, we find out that Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila leave Corinth after a considerable amount of time. They cross back over the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, where the couple stays in Ephesus, while Paul moves on to do his orbiting thing. And it's there in Ephesus that Priscilla and Aquila come across this young Christ follower from Alexandria named Apollos. Alexandria was known as really an intellectual hub in the ancient world. It was home to the great library, the philosopher Philo. It was also where the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Apollos was very Alexandrian. He was knowledgeable in scripture. He was eloquent in speech. Martin Luther and other latter scholars theorized that Apollos is actually the author of Hebrews. And yet, for all that he had going for him, as a follower of Jesus, he needed to grow. He needed some discipleship. He needed a few course corrections. He needed to understand more fully who Jesus was and the power of the Holy Spirit and who taught him that. It was Priscilla and Aquila. How did they do that? Only because Paul had invested in them. And Apollos becomes so influential that some people in Corinth actually preferred Apollos over Paul, if we can imagine, sort of thing. This is, the, this is kind of the inception of the celebrity pastor. 
that we so enjoy here in America. But Apollos became such an influential leader because of Paul making that relational investment in Priscilla and Aquila and that having an exponential impact on the church. As we look across this passage, sometimes God calls us to move on, to be on our way relationally, to be on to the next job, the next geographic location, the next chapter in our calling. And we certainly see all of that with Paul. He's moving about quite a bit. But there are other times when God calls us to stay here. And the ability to persevere in a place, it arises from our lived experience with Christ. And it's trendy to talk about, quote unquote, being present. But I truly believe that being present is only possible in Christ Jesus. And here's why. So much, that, so much of what takes us away from being present is regret about the past or anxiety about the future. It's hard to live in here and now because we're always thinking about what happened or what will happen. So it's only in the cross of Christ that we find the security of forgiveness. The cross says that in the sight of God, our sin has been removed as far as from the east is from the west. And therefore, this grants us the security that we need to face how we have wronged God and others. To confess where we failed and to find forgiveness so that we can move forward in life. And it's only in the resurrected reign of Christ that we find the security for an uncertain future. And if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus isn't the victor over all sin, death, and darkness, we're just drifting aimlessly and hopelessly into the future. But the resurrection... The resurrected reign of Christ grants us the security we need. It means that Christ has the ability to truly work all things for the good, even when life doesn't appear good, because he is our future security. And the result, we can stay here. We can be present in a Christ-centered way. And what carries us along in life is not fear of the past or the future. But what carries us along in life in Christ is the love of his spirit all the way into eternity. Don't you want to be that kind of person? I love how Wendell Berry, regional author, writes about this in an essay, A Native Hill. Barry says, it is possible as I have learned again and again to be in one's place, in such company, wild or domestic, and with such pleasure that one cannot think of another place that one would prefer to be, or of another place at all. One does not miss or regret the past or fear or long for the future. Being there is simply all and is enough. Such times give one the chief standard and the chief reason for one's work. 
So where is God calling you to stay this morning? Let me pray. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on that last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.